You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at the wonderful world of goat's cheese. We talked to pioneering British goat's cheese maker, Charlie Westhead of Neal's Yard Creamery, cheesemonger Andy Swinsco of the Courtyard Dairy, and another goat's cheese maker, Greg Parsons of Sharpham, and John Thrupp, the director of Mons Cheesemongers, tells us about French goat's cheeses. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Well, this morning I'm really happy to have um, a pioneer of Gates cheese in Britain, Charlie Westhead of Neil's Yard Creamery with me. Charlie makes a cheese called Peroche, a lovely fresh Gates cheese that I'm sort of practically addicted to, actually, I think, Charlie. I've been buying it for decades now, um, so really lovely to talk to you. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning. Nice to talk to you too. Charlie, I was interested, tell me, how did you get into the world of cheese? What was the, the early, the starting point? I was a bit of a no-hoper, really. I was messing about, not doing much in my very early 20s, uh, wondering what to do. And then I had a flash of inspiration. Um, I like cheese. <laughs> and so I decided to get a job in a cheese shop. Uh, I worked in a couple of places, uh, and then somebody told me about Neil's Yard Dairy. So uh, I went and knocked on the door there. Uh, and as soon as I walked in, I knew it was where I wanted to be. It suited me much better than the other places I'd tried. So um, I kept going back. They didn't have a job available, but I kept going back, knocking on the door every week for about two months. Uh, Is this the shop in Covent Garden, their first shop? It was the original, there. yes. Yeah. The original, tiny. Yeah. Tiny, yeah. it was tiny, yeah. Brilliant. So you persisted then, and then they... I persisted. They <laughs> well, I think somebody left, and then they thought, well, we better give it to that chap that keeps coming in, otherwise he'll go mad. Uh, <laughs> next time he comes in and we've given it to somebody else. So, uh, yes, they took me on. I think I was their first full-timer, actually. Um, but, yeah, 1986. Gosh. And and was presumably working with Randolph, and they were making... Were you making cheese there in the shop? That was one of the plans for the dairy initially, wasn't it? Absolutely. That is how it started. Uh, it started with Greek-style yoghurt, uh, and then they tried a couple of other things. Yes, I think they just they had started making some creme fraiche and got a little bit of um, goat's milk in and started making a fresh goat's cheese. You remember the size of the shop. Yes. <laughs> when they, once they'd started making cheese, they realised that they weren't really going to make much of a living out of it in that space. So that's when they started buying cheese from farms. They went uh, up to the country, uh, up country and bought uh, some cheese from Lancashire and places. So the, the production in that tiny space was never going to happen. So they rented some space sorry, on a farm in Seven Oaks in Kent. And a couple of people from the shop had gone to 
make that. And that was, so it was called Neil's Yard Creamery from that moment. Mm-hmm. That's, it was run as a separate business. Uh, when I arrived, that had been going for a year or so, uh, and it wasn't working that well. Uh, and for the two or three years I was at Neil's Yard Dairy, um, there were a few problems down there. Uh, and when they decided to leave, I was, uh, I put my hand up and said, I'll go down and take that over. You were interested then in the idea of making the cheese, not just selling it, actually making it yourself then. Or, and dairy products, it's not just cheese, is it, that you make? That's right. So one of my jobs was to go around the farms collecting the cheese during my uh, time at Neil's Yard Dairy. So I used to sit and have breakfast with farmers who were making cheese, used to go and see the production before loading up the Neil's Yard Dairy van and bringing the cheese back to London. So um, I rather like the idea. I thought that's maybe uh, a ticket out of London. I'm not a Londoner. Uh, and I thought that's something I could do. I could see it was hard work, but I thought that would be a lovely thing to do. So, yes, when the opportunity came up to take over uh, what was going on down in Seven Oaks, I, I absolutely jumped at it, yeah. Brilliant. And tell me, so at this point, did you start making a goat? So this fresh goat cheese you'd mentioned, there had been a little one made. Is this, was this one of the early cheeses that Neil's Yard Creamery were making then? Was, was it the Paroche? It was. It was. And interestingly, the name, uh, the two people from Neil's Yard Dairy who started making it were Perry James and Beatrice Garrosh. Garrosh. Oh, yeah. You know, I never knew that. That's so nice to know. I and yeah, cheese names. Brilliant. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. It's a lovely name. It's great. It's a really nice name, isn't it? So we had absolutely no desire to change it. Uh, uh, although I did change the recipe fairly soon after going there. There were issues with it being slightly flaky curd. Um, anyway, I started, uh, I changed it. That's when I started making the curd in small uh, buckets in the sort of traditional French style, French farmhouse style. Uh, it was being made in a vat up to lunch. So I played around with it and got that texture that um, I really, really like, um, and hopefully I you do too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I really do. Gosh, I'm sort of just thinking about it now, wishing I had some in the fridge, but um, I'll have to rectify that tomorrow when I go into town. But it's got, I mean, it's got that lovely, it's a very delicate sort of messy, mm, can't quite describe it texture. How, how do you describe it to people? What I'm very pernickety about is looking after the curd. So we set the curd overnight in buckets and then we cut it with a very thin knife into about one inch, you know, two, two to three centimetre uh, cubes or columns in a, in, a, in a down bucket. And then, then I use a little scoop. And so I retain the very, very, very delicate texture of that curd mm. and, and just ease the curds into the mould, like pouring a a fizzy beer without, you know, so you don't want the head to come yeah. up. So when I'm showing somebody how to do it, I always say, just imagine it's a, you know, a, a bottle conditioned beer. ale and, you know, you're trying to. <laughs> very gentle. That's very good, isn't it? Yes, that amount of care that you take. Yeah. That's right. So, so the cubes don't then collapse. So they just sit in the mould and then they, they naturally drain. So the curds just drain through curd itself and out through the holes in the mould. And for that, I think, is key to the texture of the Paroche. Yes, if anyone listening hasn't tried it, I do, as you can tell, warmly recommend it. But, but Charlie, in fact, so now you're talking to us from Herefordshire, and this is where Neil's Yard Creamery, which is, which is your own business, you 
you know, it's not linked to New Zealand Dairy. Obviously, you do work very closely with them and they sell a lot of your products. Um, I was wondering why you work, you make goat's cheeses. What, what is it about? Is it that you enjoy working with goat's milk or, or are there other, other practical economic reasons too? I do like working with goat's milk, actually. Uh, it is my favourite one. We do make uh, a cow's cheese and we obviously make all the creme fraiche and Greek-style yoghurt, but uh, there's something about goat's curds that uh, I do really like. Mm. Um, we've made a cow's cheese, a fresh cow's cheese, which we don't make anymore, actually, partly because it didn't sell as well. And uh, the goat's cheese has just become the bigger part of Neil's Yard Creamery, just purely for you, through sales, really. I think right. maybe we, we, you know, we, we're suited to making goat's cheese, I think, and, and we like doing it and we do it um, quite well. And, uh, and, and that's what sells. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm very fond of goat's cheese. And I was wondering, because you see them, they always have that brilliant white colour. Um, and I suppose that reflects the milk, that goat's milk is a bright white. But then I was thinking, well, why? Why is goat's milk so white? And I thought perhaps you could tell me, Charlie. It's the uh, it's down to the digestion system of the goats. It uh, doesn't convert, uh, well, it converts carotene in their, in their digestive system. It converts the carotene more efficiently than cows do. So the cows let the um, carotene through into the milk and butter and cream, um, whereas the goats don't. It's as simple as that. So uh, they have a slightly more efficient system. And the um, carotene, what is in, in the grass or the part, whatever it is there? Sorry, yes, it's the grass. Yes, it's in the grass. Absolutely. Right, okay. Oh, that's interesting. It is very striking, isn't it? So tell me, I was wondering what it's like, given that you work with cows milk and goat's milk, what, you know, are there differences from a cheesemaking point of view? You know, is one, you know, do you find that one is, I don't know, they're different fat compositions. What, what is it about the, you know, why do you like working with goat's milk? What is it that makes it interesting for you? I think with the cow's milk, it is partly that yellow fattiness that the goat's cheese milk doesn't have uh that i like actually uh mm. you don't get covered in um you know your fingers don't get covered in uh uh yellow sort of buttery fat when you're like when you're working with cow's cheese the goat's milk is very clean and uh in that sense oh. and uh, and your body digests it better which is why so many people have uh an intolerance to cow's milk but can digest goat's milk very uh much much better uh the fat molecule has a very is very small Mm -hmm. in the goat's milk and it also has a very very thin uh the the fat globule has a thin uh lining and and that's what the body can digest so much easier than cow's milk the the fat globule in a cow's uh, in cow's milk uh, is quite strong, and your body, right. um, your digestive system, in, in a lot of people, has has struggles to break that down. That's interesting because when you, you know, when you first started making goat's milk, it was, it was. I'm guessing it was much sort of uh, rarer, you know, in a way to see British goat's milk cheeses. Around. Now there are lots. You know, we've seen the rise of, you know, I can I can buy I could buy a pint of goat's milk in the supermarket, can I, and get butter. All these products are now available in the way yeah. they weren't, which I think as obviously is linked to that sort of dairy intolerance, intolerance of, of cow's milk. It is linked to uh, the intolerance, for sure. But I think just people's tastes have changed. People's tastes have got more educated. I mean, you know, we're, talk- we're talking the 1980s uh, to now. You just think of the food revolution that's happened between now and then, between then and now. Mm. Um, so goat's cheese has 
had a, a massive increase in the number of people eating it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, which must be very rewarding if you if you like making goat's cheese and you, you know, here you are. And presumably, you know, it's a growing market and people are, are interested in it and open-minded enough to, to try it in a way. Perhaps yes. They weren't. Yeah. So you you work very closely with a farm. You source, you, you're not, um, you don't look after gets yourself. You, you buy the milk from a, from a farm that presumably you've got a long relationship with. Absolutely. Yes, we work with one single farm, just like we work with one single cow's milk farm. So yes, very close relationship. We go in the morning and collect the milk just after after the goats have been milked. So for the parosh, for example, the milk is in the goat on Sunday morning. We we wait till they finish milking, bring the milk back, warm the milk up, and pour it into the buckets. And then the next morning, it's curd. We, we mould the parosh, and the, literally the next day on the Tuesday. It's on the van to London. Wow! Gosh, that really. So is it's yeah, it's milk in the goat on Sunday, and it, well, technically it's grass and clover and lucerne <laughs> on the Saturday on the on the Saturday. Yeah. And CO two a couple of days before that. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, what a cycle! Yeah, that's fascinating. Tell me about your other cheeses, Charlie, because I'm most interested in this. Um, you know, in a way, but given that you're not just making one goat's cheese, how do you create different? Tell me what the different goat's cheese are you make and and how you make the differences between them. So we are more in the French style. So we, we like the idea of pouring the milk in the during the day and leaving those curds to set in buckets overnight. So it's a, what you call a lactic set and very different to a hard cheese make. So all our curds are like that. We don't have a big vat anyway. So we, we never made hard cheese, so we don't have a big vat. So we just make everything in buckets. Um, so that's that's the main difference. But then the difference between the cheeses that we make are all down to drainage, essentially. Uh, oh. So the, you, you're basically, almost every cheese is down to drainage. It's how you remove the whey from the milk and, the, and how you do that is the difference between the cheeses, essentially. So that's the difference between the curds. And then Obviously, the parosh we just sell it when it's 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 ready to go as fresh as possible. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other ones we ride them. So the Dorsten and the Ragstone are the main two other ones that we make. They're ripened, and again, the Dorsten is we drain those curds, pre-drain those curds on a on the table on drainage mats, and then sprinkle salt into the curd. So with those with the Dorsten we're putting pre-drained, pre-salted curd into the molds. Mm -hmm. And that makes a difference. And then with the ragstone, we're putting the curds into the molds direct, a bit more like the paroche. Right. Is one older than the other, the Dawson and the ragstone? Well, Dawson's probably slightly younger, but only by a few days. So the right. ragstone that you might buy in the shop would be, say, only about three weeks old. The Dawson could only be about two weeks old. So we don't mature them for long, just enough to get a rind on them. And then, it, well, really, then it's down to the cheesemonger. So whether it's Niels Yard Dairy or Andy uh, Courtyard Dairy, they would keep them at that point. Yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating, the role that cheesemongers play, you know, in in the cheese. In, in, they're part of that creative process too, aren't they? Because if they're buying them young and then they, they keep them particular texture. I was talking to Rory Buchanan of Buchanan's, 
And I'm pretty sure it was one of your cheeses he was talking about. Maybe it was the Dorsten. He was talking about how he, he wanted a particular texture just under the rind. And so he took, mm. he put it in the right, um, you know, conditions, which I can't remember what they were, I'm afraid. But it's to do with temperature and moisture in the yeah. air. Yeah, he does keep them in the box. We send them out in a little wooden box because Dorsten doesn't like being wrapped, actually. We send it out with quite a, a very thin rind on, quite young. And we put it in a little wooden box. So six cheeses in a box. So they create their own little uh, atmosphere in there. Quite similar to French cheeses, which might be sent out in wooden trays. Mm -hmm. And then Rory, yes, he keeps them in those boxes, but in certain conditions, he'll he'll kind of stack them up, I think. So, And then he switches the boxes around so that the outer ones don't dry out. And he keeps a little huddle of Dorsten boxes <laughs> until they are uh, exactly the way he wants them to be. Yeah, I did buy, I bought one um, a few weeks ago and it was it was delicious and it had broken down below the rind, but the but the rind was all dry. It was quite interesting, which I think was an effect yeah. that he was after. Um, yeah, it was really, I mean, it's fascinating. I love that whole, you know, it's so interesting that actually, and if I bought a Dorsten from Ruri, it would be different, I'm guessing, from a Dorsten from New Zealand dairy because they have yes. different styles of affinage of maturing. So hey, this is what makes the world of cheese so glorious, you know, because if you if you like it and enjoy it, they're just the variety. I mean, apart, you know, and obviously you must see yourself this, you you know, you're working with the milk every day, Charlie. So so you you, you totally know all the, the differences, presumably. You, you must see it and feel it in, you know, in the cheese that you're making. Absolutely. So the differences in the cheese come from the milk. And when we are dealing with that curd, we find that the cheese that we make from it, some of it we can control. So we try and gear it, uh, move it a certain way. And then the differences that we can't control, we just say, well, it's seasonal cheese and uh, it's artisan cheese. So we, we celebrate the ones that we can't control. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which is um, yeah, it was very good. I mean, that is the fun of when you go into a good cheese shop that they'll they'll say, oh, this is great today. You know, this batch is one, and I particularly like, you know, because today it's got this note or whatever it is. You know, it's that whole yeah, yes. a lot of tasting and and it makes it interesting. It's not it's not just a sort of you're not buying something that's homogenous and mass produced and the same. The whole joy of it in a way is that it's you know particularly good. A cheese that is you know always good but some days it might hit a particularly sweet note you know whatever so that's right yeah. no absolutely and with our cheeses they move quite quickly you know if you've got a cheddar then that will just sort of sit there with our cheeses being high moisture soft cheeses mold ripened cheeses uh, they do move quite quickly and they're very susceptible to whatever the cheesemonger does with it Mm. or how we send it out. So if we send it out with a little bit more moisture in it, it'll ripen very quickly and then you'll get that breakdown under the rind happening quite quickly. We don't want that to happen too quickly, but it'll be very different. And even a cheese, crazy. this may, may sound crazy to you, but the same cheese made from the same bucket on, put on the same rack, the cheeses on the corners of the rack will be drier than the ones in the middle of the rack. Okay. And those yeah. cheeses, the moister ones, will move quicker. So yeah, absolutely, every every cheese is different, even if it's come from the same bucket of curd. Gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's such a so interesting. So, well, listen, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I am absolutely now craving paroche, so I will have to go and and sort that out. Um, I love your other <laughs> cheeses too, but I think paroche must have been. I was thinking about. It, I think it's just one of the very early cheese I bought from Neil's Yard I was a bookseller working yeah. in the area and I'd go to that shop and then started buying 
and remember thinking, ooh, and I just remember just sort of loving it. And they never, they didn't always yeah. have it, I remember. So it was a bit like, have you got Porsche today? No, oh, I can. And I'd come back and try, you know, rather like you, I'd go back and try again. And, uh, yeah, yeah, well, it is so fresh, isn't it? It, it? And it's so nice to be eaten fresh. It's it, it's better when it comes in than it is just before it's used by yeah. date. Yeah, it, in fact, we've, that's come up yeah. as a theme on the programme because I was talking about paneer and we were I was talking to Indian food writers who were saying it's so easy to make. It is a fresh cheese you can make easily at home. And actually the fresh is so different from what you buy. And I made yeah. some. And it was absolutely true because it was, and it was the texture. It was so delightful, you know, and the sweetness of the milk. But it was actually the texture was the really knockout difference. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's nice because um, with the parosh, I think it's, it is quite unique in this country because I, d- I can't think of anybody who makes it the same way we do. And that's partly because it does have a very short shelf life. We don't really, it's pretty impossible. We don't have any wholesalers that take it particularly because mm-hmm. it's, they, they can't store it and then try and sell it. It's got to have a home from the moment it hits right. their, their shop or their, I mean, Niels Yarderi will supply it to another shop um, as will uh, Andy at Courtyard Dairy, I'm sure. But they they know what that shop wants, and it's there the next day. So it's such a short shelf life before it starts wanting to ripen, and then it's lost its USP, if you like. Yeah. That that that's why you won't find another cheese like Parosh. It's 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 still draining in the uh, you know if you pick one off the shelf, it, the, the bottom of it's wet, yeah, isn't I it? Wet. So yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I so, also so make sure you know not to put it on my newspaper in my bag. Yeah. It's, that's it and that's because it's you know there aren't there's nobody else sort of brave enough to try and launch a cheese like that that's that great relationship between your business and Niels Dairy that you know that you've got they can sell such a fresh cheese which is um yeah which I'm yeah but they sell they sell in all all the shops that we supply we we go direct and that's another reason I was actually going to touch on that about the the other the other cheeses and how quickly they ripen it's one Mm. of the reasons we don't touch supermarkets we would never want to go anywhere near uh supplying a supermarket because they just wouldn't have the wherewithal to deal with it with our stuff uh and we were talking about the celebrating the differences between batches they want to know which one they needed to reject mm. because they can't both be you know two different cheeses on two different weeks one of them's got to be wrong which one is it so we we could never go anywhere we deal we supply direct to specialist cheese shops and specialist cheese maturers, uh, yeah. and that's the way we like it. Brilliant. I mean, it's a great relationship. It is interesting that, and I think people don't realise quite how important wonderful cheese shops are to to the cheese producers, you know, because they're the showcase. You know, that's where I go and buy yeah. cheese, yeah. and and their role, yeah. their care, their commitment is absolutely vital. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but the nice thing is, Charlie, that it, you know, you have found. Over these years, you found such a, an audience, you know, obviously for what you're doing, and it sounds like a growing audience in a way. Yes, it is, yeah, absolutely. But it, like you say, it is down to the wonderful shops that we supply. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Charlie, for your time, because I know how busy you must be. So I do really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Okay, thank you. I'll get back in the cheese room. All right, Charlie, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop 
Enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Well, I'm really happy today to have Andy Swinsco of the Courtyard Dairy with me on the show. Um, the Courtyard Dairy is in Settle, or perhaps near Settle, might be more accurate, in North Yorkshire. And Andy is a fantastic cheesemonger who has also done a lot to nurture and create cheesemakers near him. So that's going to be part of the story. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Jane. I wanted to start with you first, Andy. We're looking at goat's cheese this week. What sort of role, you know, as a cheesemonger, I'm guessing you would always want goat's cheeses on the counter. What, tell me about the characteristics, you know, we, we, we classify cheeses by their types and, and milk is obviously a way of classifying it. Tell me what the characteristics are or the interest of goat's milk for you. Yeah, I think, I think it's an important part of any good cheese counter, any cheese board is goat's milk. And one that's become more prevalent in the last 10 to 20 years. I don't think they, historically within Britain, we didn't keep so many goats, I don't think. Goats don't really like wet weather so much and wet pasture. And that's, you know, Britain's got, got an awful lot of that. <laughs> and um, and I think that when people started to go abroad a bit more, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, and they went to France and they started to see goat's cheeses, they started to get acclimatised with them. And then that coupled with that revolution in Britain where people went back to cheese making and set up from scratch, I think goats are well suited towards small holding. And so as a result, you've started to see more and more goat's cheeses start to creep into uh, British cheesemongers and, and restaurant cheese boards as well. And I think it's an important part of that. There were, some of them were always still there, but they tended to be those very historic French ones, the Cotton de Chauvignols and the like. You'd classically find that in a, in a good quality restaurant 20, 30 years ago. Obviously, new, so makers started making new cheeses, presumably new goat's cheeses then. Yeah, yeah, a good, a, good, a good plethora of new makers within Britain, people setting up and taking French recipes and evolving it from there. And also you know, taking British recipes, old fashioned British recipes. I mean, you think of Ticklemore, which is a very, one of the, probably the original British hard goat's cheese made. And that is effectively a, like based on a, a kafili recipe. So it's a traditional British recipe that's then evolved with goat's milk and then became its own little thing and, and, and tweaked and changed over the years. And that's the way the, the British cheese resurgence has gone. And I think goat's milk really suits a cheese board because it has that Quite often they're quite fresh, they're quite clean flavours, uh, and they're quite acidic, and they're great to start a cheese board with. Uh, and the flavours are quite herbaceous and delicate and characteristic. Um, I think that a lot of goat's cheese makers and goat's cheeses historically had that big goat flavour, um, but nowadays they've become a bit more balanced. There is some out there, and sometimes that's what you want from the cheese, but nowadays they have a bit more roundedness and you can get a whole range. Yes, they've got a lot of the ones I like are actually quite delicate in their flavour, and often the pleasures for me are, are partly the texture, actually. Um, yeah, and, and as you say, that sort of bright, those lemony notes. Yeah, very delicious to eat. And I was really interested, Andy, because um, you sell the goat's cheese in your shop that, as far as I know, it's the only place it's sold. Is that right? Is that Hebden, Hebden yeah. Bridge? Tell me tell me the story of that that goat's cheese. Yeah. Well, Gillian's one of those really interesting, and this is why you've got quite a few little goat's cheese makers in Britain is that uh, in the last 20 years is that Gillian really wanted a small holding, wanted to kind of set up farming by herself but really to become more self-sufficient you know and just live a little bit off what she produced herself and goats are really well suited towards that much more so than 
than cows uh, because they, they don't need the big equipment, they don't need quite as much food, they don't need quite as much water. You know, they're kind of much more suited towards a, a small holding, which is why you see so many of them in France on their tiny little farms. And um, and so Gillian went down that route and she decided she was going to get goats and milk them so that she could um, drink the milk and use the milk in her own food uh, and then also ha have the meat if necessary. And also at the same time, she chose a breed of goat which she thought you could make uh, butter from because she wanted to become fully self-sufficient. So she chose this Anglo-Nubian breed of goat which produces incredibly rich milk. And then what she didn't realize is when she starts killing them, they produce an awful lot of milk, you know, well, more, mm -hmm. for, more than she needed for one household, you know. And she, I mean, she originally set off with only three or four goats. And, um, but still then that was more than she needed for her whole household and, and for feeding the, the goats once they'd weaned. And so she then came to us and said, I've got this little bit of goat's milk, what should I do? And she'd already had a goat making like fresh curds. Um, but what they didn't really showcase was the richness of A, that hair milk, that traditional breed, uh, the fact that they were they were fed on her own pasture and quite diverse meadow pasture and, and cut hay from the Pennines. And what, what we had there was a really rich flavour of milk and we wanted to showcase it in a cheese. And um, and we said, well, if you could make cheese, then we, we would sell it uh, and we would we would help you down that route. And so that's really where it went from there. We you know she came to us with a surplus of milk and not knowing what to do with it. I'll never forget the time she came into her, first came into our cheese shop because she came in and she thought she said. Um, Oh, it's smaller than I thought for your reputation. I thought, well, you know, we sell a lot of cheese, but that's what we do. We don't do anything else. We just sell a lot of cheese in a small little shop. Yeah, so it grew from there. Really, and she, she, we decided that we'd help her develop a cheese kind of in that French style. She was so small and she, her milk was such rich quality because she was more interested in that farming, small holding self-sufficiency than she was in kind of, you know, large scale commercial dairying uh, that we felt we could create a really special little thing that would showcase the richness so of her tell milk me that, that journey. Tell me a bit more, Andy. So, did you did, did you have a sort of cheese recipe, or did you go and give advice? Because I know you have done that. You you've done a lot of you know you you've put a lot of also help and guidance into people who are making cheeses, especially people starting off. Obviously, tell yeah. Me, what, I think how did that go? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of from our business is that when people ask you what, what your achievements are, and yeah, we've won a lot of awards, and we employ a lot of people, and and we you know reinvigorated this little. Um, area and provided a draw, which is which is fabulous. But one of the things I'm most proud of is, is there's like five or six farms that where we've been directly involved in helping them develop a cheese and helping them making their their farm more secure and helping them make a real quality cheese, something that I, I personally believe in. And, and Hebden Goat is is one of them. You know, it's something that we've been actively helped Gillian from day one for no other reason than you know I would like to see more farmhouse cheesemakers making with unpasteurized milk on their own little farm and making something that's true to their area and uh, true to their pasture really and, and so yeah so uh, so she came to us and, and we um well, first of all I went down and visited her uh, saw what she was doing because you know I, I give a lot of time and effort to helping people and and I'm, I'll always help anybody really but some people are going down the right route and have the right head switched on have the right quality milk um, and those are the people we'll probably give a bit more time to you know and so and so we'll uh, so we went down and visited her and spent a bit of time with her um, tasted the milk, saw her goats, tasted the curd that she was currently making and, and talked to her about what type of cheese I would like her to develop really and what equipment she would need for that. And we decided on those small little, what they call lactic cheeses. So kind of what goat's milk is quite famous for, those small little individual cheeses um, that are quite delicate, quite acidic on the interior and often have a wrinkly rind on the outside uh, because it, su it suited her on a small scale. You know, they are not too labour intensive. They have a relatively fast turnover 
in terms of you make the cheese, it's sold within two or three weeks, so you don't need loads of space. And she mm -hmm. makes effectively in her converted utility room, if that makes So that's kind of the size of her cheese making dairy, you know, she didn't have more space. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so don't need lots of space for maturing, don't need to keep them for too long. Uh, and they require you to be on the farm and be there every day, which she was, but they don't require you to spend a long time in the dairy. So something like cheddar or blue cheese might require you to spend a long time making cheese, whereas Gillian didn't have that, not with only, you know, 20 litres of milk a day, if that, mm -hmm. you know. So it's um, so they, we decided we'd help her develop that cheese. Um, and she we, we encouraged her to go on a, a cheese-making course with a, a really good um, advocate of that and a really good instructor called a guy called Ivan Larcher. And then we set up with some contacts where she could buy the right quality bacteria and yeast that we wanted for the end quality of cheese and told her what we were looking for really. Cause a lot of cheeses, a lot of farmers, cheesemakers have an idea to make cheese, but they end up making an industrial style cheese. And, and for me, that really doesn't showcase the quality of your milk. Uh, it doesn't really showcase um, the richness of your milk. And, and at the same time, industrial cheesemakers are absolutely fabulous. You know, they're, they're very good at what they do. And if, you, if you're making industrial cheese on a small scale, all you're doing is making more expensive, you know industrial <laughs> cheese you know because it's inefficient yeah. so you yeah. really have to play with what you know and so you know so we we wanted to develop something which is slightly more challenging but really would showcase what she was doing so it must be very small scale so were you just buying a sort of few cheeses at a time initially yeah initially we would buy 30 cheeses a week which by the time we we're driven to hebden bridge in in west yorkshire and back was not worth it financially um we you know we we, we wouldn't make any money on the, the sale of those cheese but we knew that as always, you've got to put your hand in your pocket at some stage. And Gillian wanted to increase the herd of goats and wanted to make slightly more. And we knew that if she could get up to eight to ten goats, it would start to get to a level where it would become uh, financially viable for us to kind of um, go and collect it and bring it back up. I mean, you've got to support people in day one to get to day two, you know. So, so yeah, it was just 30 cheese initially. We're now up to about 100 a week, um, which is mm -hmm. and at the moment it, it won't increase from that, which is a real shame. Uh, but you know, it's that, that's where we're at at the moment. Um, yeah. So, and we took her to visit other cheesemakers who I thought had done a fabulous job. People like Niels Yard Creamery, him at the Doorstone, and the Ragstone, because they've managed to set up a real amazing cheese business, but mm. without having to buy all the perfect equipment. Because they set up in the seventies and eighties when you couldn't buy the perfect equipment, you know, and it wasn't available online. You didn't have cheesemaking equipment available in brochures. Um, so they they managed. They're just in really intelligent cheesemakers and really savvy. And I kind of want to show Gillian how you could do it on a small scale without having to have a perfect maturing room and a perfect drying room and a perfect uh, temperature, you know, a perfect everything. Whereas you know, Cream, you're a good advocates of how you can do it just by using your brain. And, and by being such a, a good clever. point that those pioneers of the people who did, you know, that revival of British cheese making, who were working, you know, you know, pre-internet, and the internet's jolly useful for information, obviously, and and without the kit. And then it's so fascinating that actually then, you know, it becomes much more um, accessible, doesn't it? Because if you can go online and get, see a see a video, get information, and they said buy the equipment for small scale production. That's what's happened with um, the sort of bean to bar chocolate movement, you know, that yeah. bits of kit are now available, but the people making it early on were really struggling and, and using a lot of initiative and problem solving. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, Creamery did, yeah. Yeah, and you don't realise how much, even things like this, you know, people can come on and listen to this and learn a little bit about cheese, whereas, you know, you know, because the, the internet has advantages and disadvantages, and one of the massive advantages is it connects people up who are interested in a, in a subject that historically uh, wouldn't have been connected. You know, I, I love the story of that Veronica Steele was making millines in Southern Ireland, and she thought she was the only person making traditional cheese in Ireland. And in the middle of Ireland, there was... Um, you know, the Corlegi people, uh, Silka making Cavanbear and, and the Corlegi cheeses. 
and she thought she was the only one because there wasn't any connectivity at all. And there was no, they didn't realize that in the other, the other end of Ireland, there was also somebody else setting up from scratch. And, and nowadays you can connect and you can help and you can get advice and you can look online and you can listen to things like this. And, 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 and that's brilliant. But yeah, in those days, the early pioneers had to be a lot more um, resourceful. But also I think that something, it meant that their startup costs were a bit more clever. You know, if you want to set up cheese making now, you'll be encouraged to buy the best quality equipment. You'll be encouraged to buy the best quality of art. You'll be encouraged to buy the best quality of everything. Whereas all of a sudden then that puts financial pressures on a new cheese maker. And so they've got to get it to market. They've got to sell it. Whereas actually, you know, and they've got to cover those overheads. And, and, and whereas the old ones, you know, they were just a bit more savvy and they used buckets and heaters and drain pipes, you know, and colanders, which were yeah. a lot cheaper, you know? So yeah. it meant that they could, they, you know, it meant they didn't maybe, that's a bit more intelligent and maybe actually I think some of guys not necessarily a better cheese maker but one that was more responsive to their, their milk and the environment rather than relying on everything being perfect um so I think it's uh yeah it's uh, really interesting, interesting. And so coming back to Hebden Bridge what you, you better tell us what it's like Andy because I want to know now what is this lovely little gates cheese that you spent all this time nurturing and, and helping you know Julian make it what what is what is it what is it like yeah, so it's of that, of that what you consider classic um, goat's cheese style, but it has a real richness that comes from her milk. Um, so we sell it about three weeks old, so it has this paper-thin yeast rind on it, um, which is, uh, you know, gives a real, it has a little bit of a bread doughy towards the rind and this herbaceousness. It's very gently goat-flavoured, but it has an incredible richness, which just kind of coats the mouth. Uh, and it's got a, it's got a dense texture, not a hard cheese, but you know, there's some of the other fabulous British goat's cheeses like Synodon Hill and Dawson, which are quite light and fluffy, whereas mm. this is much more dense. So it matures really well. It just it matures incredibly well. Have you experimented with the maturing? So I didn't mean to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, the, the original plan we had was to try and sell two different profiles of Hebden goat, like the younger one at three weeks and an older one at, um, you know, about, about three months. Uh, mm. But just because of availability of the cheese, it's like gold dust. You know, you, you have to wink at us and nod at us to get a to get a bit of it, anyways. Regardless of uh, regardless of how much we've got, because uh, it's just kind of there's so little. We don't sometimes we don't even put it on our cheese counter. It's only if you know about it, you have to ask for it. You know, so it's, um, <laughs> so we don't have the ability to mature it because we sell it at three weeks, and we don't. It's a shame that we would like to keep some a little bit longer, but we don't have that ability. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yes, that makes total sense. I mean, I've, in fact, you're absolutely right. I've 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 I know people who love it and they just go, I've got Hebden Bridge. I see these sort of excited posts, you know, on Twitter and on Instagram. And in fact, interesting enough, thinking about Gates cheese. And then, of course, one of the, the sad losses of last year was the fact that Innes, the Bennetts stopped sell their sort of cheese business and stopped making Innes cheese, which was, you know, it was a, another long established Gates cheese that had a, you know, was, you know, beautiful cheese and had a big following. But those goats have gone to Martin Gott. He's bought them a Martin Gott who makes St. James. And Martin, he was always such an interesting cheesemaker to watch. So he's got this goat's milk and is producing cheeses. But so far, the ones I've tried have been sort of hard or, or washed rind. I haven't, had, I haven't seen any little soft ones yet. Uh, so that must be exciting for you, Andy, because you work closely with Martin, don't you? Yeah, you're very close. And it's, it's always exciting when um, and somebody of his, 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 well, his knowledge, but also his attitude towards farming and, and techniques, uh, really take on a take on a herd of goats to go alongside his sheep, and I think that's a really exciting thing because, you know, he's a very inspirational man. He pushes the industry forward in in, in great ways, and and, I'm sure, and I think it's really great that he's taken on these goats and continued Innes's legacy. And yeah, so so yeah, it would be interesting to see what he develops out of it. And he runs a very great system in terms of how he looks after animals. You know, in terms of to maximise, you know, maybe what we 
basically called traditional farming techniques, which not many people really follow that kind of extensive system where they're all mainly fed on forage that he produces on his own farm. And uh, yeah, so I'd be really interested to see how his gut cheese come through. And, and the early the early ones, the whole books have come through really well. I think the soft ones will start to come through with time. Obviously, with the pandemic, the way it was, you don't want to risk making a lot of soft, volatile cheeses that you know have a short selling window. But hopefully over the course of the summer, we'll start to see some really interesting different things start to develop. Listeners might not realise, but a lot of cheesemakers with the pandemic, they lost their market because hospitality closed. And if you had soft, perishable cheese, you had nowhere left to sell it. You know, it was like a disaster. And yeah. um, there was a sort of massive rallying by cheesemongers and people love cheese to try and to buy cheese. But a lot of the cheesemakers did start making harder versions of their cheese. Some of them stopped for a while and then and some of them just used that milk. You know, the milk comes, you can't turn off a farm. And if your animals are giving milk, they're giving milk. So they um, put it into hard cheese form to give it a longer shelf life. So that was the sort of move, basically, um, in the last year that you will have obviously seen, Andy. Um, but hopefully, you know, as we go forward and yeah, it would be lovely to have some really beautiful, new, fresh, young cheeses appearing on the market too. Yeah, exactly. It's and is this a good time? time? We're speaking in May. Is this is this a good time to be eating goat's cheese? Yeah, I think obviously with the spring, this year has been slightly difficult uh, because the cool temperatures mean the grass hasn't really even started growing yet, but um, which is always challenging. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but that's just the, the the influence of nature, really. So it's difficult to get your animals out to pasture, especially in northern England because it's just the grass hasn't grown. It's too, been too cold. So many late frosts. But yeah, so with the spring comes the advent of a animals going out to pasture, um, being more milk coming online because animals are quite often kidded in the case of goats in the spring, and that means you start to start to see the flush of the goats. A lot of our cheesemakers uh, stop producing or produce much less in the winter when they either dry their goats off or they you know, they just decide not. To. Goats naturally will produce much less in the winter when the days get shorter, and a lot of them are dried off ready for their kidding in the spring. So the spring kind of brings that early flush of milk. Um, and kind of it's exciting always. I, I really like seasonality in cheese. I think it's something which should be celebrated and encouraged. Yes. Um, I mean, seasonal yeah. pleasures, you know, it's like, I, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm sort of gorging on English asparagus because, which of course yes. is late this year for exactly that same reason. The cold temperatures, you know, the asparagus stayed underground waiting for a signal that it should be growing. And, um, but it's, a, it's such a treat. And I think there is something lovely, you know, we, we often, we're surrounded by abundance and choice a lot of the time. And then actually these things that are precious and come along just briefly and, you know, at certain times of year, it's a pleasure, isn't it? Yeah, and I also think some of those flavours, so those quite a lot of goat cheese is meant to be those fresh, light, acidic, clean, herbaceous flavours suit well to kind of spring produce. You know, things like asparagus, you know, the first mm. growth of your, your, your salads, you know, a bit of sunshine, you know, when tomatoes start to come through. Those salady type things in, in late spring, early summer really suit well to the fresh, clean flavours to a lot of the goat cheeses, you know, and sitting outside with a glass of wine, you know, it's kind of all kind of goes hand in hand. And just think we can even have friends to sit around with, which is a very exciting <laughs> thought. So, yeah. Well, listen, Andy, it was really, lo thank you for your time. I know how busy you are. Really lovely to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Well, on a programme about goat's cheese, I'm really happy to have me Greg Parsons from Sharpen the Cheese. Um, 
they make a number of cheeses using goat's milk, including Ticklemore. So good morning, Greg. Good morning, Jenny. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's really lovely to have you here. And I was thinking that Ticklemore um, must be one of the very early sort of goat's cheeses of this, you know, sort of modern goat's cheeses in Britain. Because Robin Condon was really quite a pioneer of using goat's milk to make cheeses. Tell me a little bit about the, the history of Ticklemore. Yeah, so as you say, you know, Robin very much was a pioneer. Um, one of the recipes he developed uh, down at Beanley, just down the road from where we are today. Um, you know, part of the renaissance of, uh, I suppose, post-war uh, British cheesemakers um, who have, you know, learning from what's what, what was happening on the continent and trying to um, develop our own range of cheeses, having been restricted to not very many. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, and it was actually um, developed and inspired by the, the fact that really clean uh, fresh goat's milk was available in this in this region um and uh and there, there seemed to be um a if you like a gap i suppose for for a a fresh clean um goat's cheese that uh that doesn't frighten you off as soon as you get a waft of it which could be the case for some of the sort of french um fresh goat's cheeses that perhaps we had tried beforehand um, and named after a street here in Totnes, Ticklemore Street, um, which is actually, oh. you know, one of the where one of the first cheese shops of this region really sort of um, took off, and um, and it's still a cheese shop today, run by Country Cheese, who are very good friends and customers of ours. They're they're wonderful people. It's a wonderful cheese shop. Yeah, um, yeah, they do a great job, don't they? Um, and so Ticklemore, it's. It's a lovely cheese, and it does have a sort of, as you say, there's, sort of, there's a delicacy to it, isn't there? Do you want to describe? At least it looks very different, I was going to say, because it's because of the form. Tell us about what it looks like yeah, and exactly. it tastes like. I'd say to you, because you, know, you come to Charles and, and look through the windows and see the cheese being made, and I often point people to the cheese moulds and say they look very much like colanders because they're colanders, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and it's been interesting over the years keeping that sort of constant supply because obviously the, 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 uh, the shape is one of the real characteristics of, uh, of Tickermore, often compared to a UFO in an affectionate way, I should say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so it's, very, it's very easily uh, sort of... Um, definable um in fact yeah. we were watching um we were watching tv the other night and uh one of the chefs on the great british menu um from the southwest had used used tickermore in a beautiful um goat's mousse that he made and we could tell it was tickermore because it was it was clearly identifiable so it's great so yeah oh, starting with the shape um you know and and the way it takes the shape is from the is from the um from the colander from the mold um and obviously um you know on day one you know it's turned many times in that mold to to gradually um uh, let out the the way um never pressed you know the the shape mm -hmm. and the texture of tickermore is formed purely by you know it, it being turned um, and nurtured through its uh, ripening process. So, um, yeah, it's never never get put under any pressure. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and then after after it's been made and turned again on day two and brined and dipped through brine, it will then be sort of turned maybe twice in the first week and then once a week following that, um, just, uh, you know, to keep a check on it, to make sure the sh shape stays consistent. And also uh, we use Penicillium candidum um, for the for the for the white fluffy mold that grows on the cheese. Mm -hmm. So when we're turning the cheese on, on a weekly basis, um, we'll give it a little bit of a rub, um, a rub of love. Um, and uh, <laughs> and that will then make sure we get a nice even coating on it as well. And characteristically, as I said you know, earlier, you know, I think it set out, sets out to be a really accessible goat's cheese, fresh, even though it's not a fresh cheese, it's got a very fresh flavor. And um, you get mm. some lovely herbaceous notes, almost some zesty notes, 
Um, it's it's great just crumbled into a salad eaten with a bit of honey or fig, um, but or uh, well, then actually really melts nicely on on uh, on breads and pizzas and stuff like that. Um, but then as it ages, it starts to pick up more nutty notes. Um, it starts to take a little bit of coloring on as well. Um, you know, and, and some of the, the tastiest sort of, or, the, or my favorite tickle more I've tasted that we've let it deliberately go on longer. Um, so the texture mm-hmm. then will sort of just um, get a little bit firmer. Um, and, and then it start, then it starts to pick up some of the, the nice goat characteristics, but not those sort of acrid flavors yeah. that um, maybe aren't so, aren't so welcoming. Okay, you've made me want some, <laughs> so drat uh, <laughs> you. But anyway, um, and, but it's, uh, not, <laughs> it's an occupational hazard of this job, actually, so, um, which, you know, it's fine. But it's not just Tickle that you're making. Tell us about some of the other ways that you use goat's milk in the dairy. Yeah, we make a couple of other cheeses. Um, we make cremette, which is, um, you know, you shouldn't have favorites, but it is sort of my, my favorite cheese that we make. Um, and cremette is made... Um, as a sort of a, as a goat's brie, but then um, uh, during the make process, we had cow's double cream, so cow's milk double cream, oh. um, and yeah. it needs to be handled very gently. Um, it's only cut, I think, once, maybe twice, if needed. The curd's only cut maybe once or twice, so releasing you know uh, less moisture. Um, and then, as I say, very, very delicate. There's only a couple of people, and I'm not one of them, that's allowed to actually um, turn it in the dairy. I'm a bit too heavy-handed. <laughs> but what you get then is a, is, is a cheese that just, uh, as it ripens, sort of as it gets to sort of three to four weeks of age, um, still lack, uh, won't have broken down much by then, but you're getting this really uh, beautifully creamy cheese with just that undercurrent of the herbaceousness coming through, made more indulgent by the double cream. And then as it as it brightens even further, you know, it gets to sort of six weeks, it then starts to give you, you know, it's, it's a really um, unctuous, um, uh, indulgent mm. cheese. Um, won lots of awards, uh, very proud in 2019, won the Great British Food Award, not just for the cheese, but for the uh, for all products, judged by Marcus Waring. Oh. Um, so we're really pleased with that. The only, the only challenge with cremette for us is is making enough of it really and and timing it right because there's only so much we can make due to the the moulds we make it in and and the process required Um, and then we either have too much or too little and and these days we we often have too little so today we we, we, we can't supply any cremette there's lots of demand out there but uh, we've got to wait for the next batch to come through and be ripe to to, and ready to go to market Um, then we also make savour um, and savour is, um, is is a uh, mainly a, a cow's milk cheese, but we use about sort of 25% goat's milk in there as well. Um, uh, we make it as a as a washed curd cheese, not washed rind, a washed curd cheese. Uh, mm-hmm. So what that means is, is during the make process, we'll strain off some of the whey uh, and we'll replace it with the equivalent uh, volume of scalding hot water. Um, uh-huh. What that serves to do is it is it it, it um, promotes a sort of uh, curds uh, sort of uh, molding into one another, and then later on that gives the cheese a lovely sort of um, uh, texture, um, similar to like a Swiss cheese, I guess, um, a very smooth texture. Um, and uh, you know that's that's uh, the cheese itself was inspired uh, by um, a trip that Mark Charman and Debbie Mumford had to France. Um, and then they came back and we're in an area of outstanding natural beauty overlooking the River Dart here. Um, and to celebrate, I think it was the 25th anniversary, might be wrong. Um, they were asked if they would come up with a special cheese and having been sampling lots of Savoir cheeses over the mm. holiday, um, they came up with the name Savour and developed this mixed milk cheese. It's unusual in Britain to use mixed milks. And that, I've seen it you know, done in Italy, in Piedmont and uh, and presumably it's an interesting thing because goat's milk has got that flavour. So I'm guessing it gives, it must give 
flavour to savour, so to speak. Uh, um, it's an interesting yeah. idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I think, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, Debbie Mumford, who worked with Robin and, you know, was a great innovator of, of, of cheeses over the last 30 years. You know, I think it's the concept that she came up with, um, inspired by the French, as most as most of our cheeses are. And, and yeah, I, I like the idea of it. I mean, even the other day, by accident, um, you know, we, we, we made a new cheese uh, in the, our... So we, we have our, uh, our own herd of cows and we have some goats, but other goats that live with them and the cows out in East Paul. But we also have a couple of other milk suppliers locally, of goat's milk. Um, one of them mm-hmm. came in and put his milk in the wrong tank on top of our cow's milk. Um, and so we had a 50-50 split. So your choices are limited. You can't take it back out again. Um, so yeah. we decided we'd make it into cheese um, and we, we thought we're trying to think of a name and and Pete, our production manager here, came, manager here, came up with uh, Rushmore. So it's halfway between rustic um, and Ticklemore. Um, and oh, nice. uh, and so a new cheese was a new a new cheese was born. It's now being <laughs> sold here in in the shop here at the Sharpham Estate um, as an exclusive. Um, but it's a really nice cheese. It looks great. Um, it, it it tastes great. You know, so it oh. sort of it, it makes the mind boggle. We also um, we also. I know this program's about goat's milk, but we also um, bring in sheep's milk and we've got a new local producer that's encouraged us to make more. And we're thinking about what we could make with a combination of, of sheep's milk and maybe all three at some stage. But at the moment, we're quite busy um, trying to get ready for every, everything to open up. Yes, it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the program. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, no, I hope, you know, as things open up, I hope everything goes brilliantly. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Jenny. Thanks for the opportunity. And if you're ever down our way, please come and come and say hello. We'd love to show you around. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Very happy today to have with me John Thrupp of Mons Cheesemongers. Mons sell wonderful sort of range of British and continental cheeses, including. I know that because I often succumb and buy them, John. So, um, and and lots of very beautiful French goat's cheeses. So, hello, yes. thank you for coming on the show. No, well, thank you very much for having me. I was, and this is, I think, I'm speaking to you in May, and this is peak goat's cheese season. Is that correct, John? Yeah, we're kind of getting into it, aren't we? I mean, I, I suppose the real peak might be in maybe three to four weeks' time when we go into June. Um, and that's just kind of the general peak. But it, it's it's kind of general and maybe it's easy to talk about peak when, in fact, if you look at France, I was just thinking actually ahead of talking with you this morning that in Provence, the snows come in. So if the snows are coming in on the higher plateaus of Provence, then obviously they have to stop their season a bit sooner. And actually some of our guys actually start back up in January. But obviously that's that's not something you'd ever want to do as a farmer most of the time. Do you know what I mean? Unless you knew the soil was going to put up with it. So some of our Provençal producers actually start extremely early because they stop sooner. Mm. Uh, but the general the general midst of it is, um, or that, yeah, in general, um, we would say to people that May and June is peak goat season, and that's on seasonal production of goat's cheese. Um, obviously, you've got productions that can go all year round. There's also that. I think, you know, sometimes we don't understand that foods are seasonal. I mean, because of the way supply chains have been built up, they're very sophisticated. And, they, you know, we have sort of, you know, it's a whole cliche of strawberries in December. We're, we're very used to things being all the time. But, of course, in the world of cheese, which... 
you know, it's how the, when the animals are lactating is when the you know when there's milk and milk to be used and and the, the you know the food the pasture for the animals as well is an issue obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was thinking about. I wanted to talk to you, John, about French goat's cheese because yeah. they do seem to be one of the glories. You know, I mean, France has a glorious cheese scene, but goat's cheese, French goat's cheese, seems a very sort of particular thing. Could you could tell me your your thoughts about? You know, do you do you see it as a really sort of wonderful bit of of the French cheese scene in a way? Yeah, I, I I really do. I mean, I think there's obviously several reasons. They've got a culture of it. They've had a, a they've got several regions which are kind of massively traditionally built around goat's cheese uh, production for various reasons. Um, and I think for us anyway, in in how I'm involved with French cheeses, it's definitely one of our massive strengths is the relationship we have with our farmhouse goat's cheese producers. Yeah, I mean the two main reasons actually why I suppose France is 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 relatively strong across Europe is that in the south where it's extremely exposed kind of um, I suppose essential oil growing kind of thyme plant uh, rugged open sunny hot uh, landscape there are very few mammals that really like that environment so if you get a rustic goat which eats through anything and eats through hmm. thistle and bush and all the rest of it and thicket then that's ideal so that's one reason why Provence is an area that still has so many goat's cheese producers. And if you go up to the north nearer the Loire, um, you've actually got this kind of polymath farming, uh, which is interesting because we're going to break into wine a little bit. Wine being the predominant kind of uh, thing that farmers would definitely want to be selling. I'd almost argue sometimes some very undervalued wines up there. Yeah, so obviously in the Loire Valley, if they were fetching uh, the same value per bottle as, as a lot of the Burgundian wine producers, and I don't want to be um, stretching out into another industry too violently here. But if they were, they probably wouldn't do the following. And what they used to do across the Loire is basically grow loads of their own food. And a lot of the time, if you ever travel through the old villages across the whole of the Loire, all of the wine, in all of the winemaking villages, you'd see houses with little huts, little doors, which would have stored maybe two to three goats. And that means that domestically, you'd have made this kind of kitchen style lactic recipe, goat's cheese, to sell at the market, to get other things in exchange. And it was used um, as a way of basically keeping your eggs in several baskets, if that makes sense. Yeah. Very sensible, yes. I and mean, you know, yeah. just the whole connection of food, yeah, to keep you going and, yes, you know, to live on and to sell. So, yeah, that's fascinating. And are, yeah. are there different styles? Do you find different styles between the Provencal and the Loire cheeses? Or Yeah, so I guess, yeah, that, that would, there, there is obviously many factors that influence how, how a lactic recipe goat's cheese will go about. But one of the main ones would definitely be the feed. And then the second would be the kind of animal and the animal breed that you would be working with. So if you're in Provence and you're with a Sarnen or an Alpine, who are the kind of bigger, um, let's call it the more prevalent goats that you would have across Europe, um, they're really more akin to a geography which is more lush, more moisture. Um, they produce kind of maybe double, if not three times, sometimes the literage of milk a day. Uh, it's already not that much, but it's definitely more than the Rove. But the Rove is, is smaller, more robust, um, sort of more un, less susceptible to sort of fragilities on parasites. And is just a bit more, as they'd call it in France, rustic. It, it's sort mm -hmm. of naturally able to defend itself against uh, the environment that it's living in and able to live off very, very little moisture. So basically not something that would, I'm not going to call the others spoilt brats. I'm just going to say that they're just, they're just adapted to that landscape. Yeah. I mean, you could also potentially say that Provence could have had certain rustic breeds of sheep as well. And I think um, 
we've actually got a producer out there that has Sardinian sheep and they do extremely well. So mm. that that animal breed difference is, uh, I think, a really big one. Hov goats naturally produce in ratio really lovely, rich, fatty cheeses. And uh, if you go towards the Alpine, where you've got them up in the Loire and the San and goats, um, you've got breeds that produce more liquid they've got a bit less dry matter fat and they've got less fat to the to the ratio of protein so they're not quite as rich and the type of fat that they've got isn't quite as big in globule size so the feel the mouth feel is different they're more velvety let's say in the loire and they're definitely richer when you come down to provence that's wonderful and that, that then influences the way you then choose to mature your cheeses generally cheeses with more fat would would demand for a shorter period of maturation um, you can go a bit further with cheeses that have less fat, if that makes sense. So you can you can then get you can draw out nuttier flavours further down the line with with some of the producers that you've got from the Loire. That's fantastic because obviously that's something that you're you're doing is you're that's part of the the skill set that Mons offers, isn't it? Is the the maturing and the the, the affinage, the bringing the cheeses to the right point. Yeah. So how does it work? You, do you get the cheeses quite young and then keep them and take them on to certain points? Yeah. So I mean, you know, if I'm going to be you know, if I was brutally honest, uh, I suppose the ideal for anyone, for a farmer, would be I sell I sell the cheese on day one, <laughs> and then the mm. maturer goes, yeah, and I sell it on day two, and that's it. That's lovely, in the sense that you're you're obviously with maximum return. You've got all the yield from all the moisture that's in the cheese, but obviously on that level, you can sell them fresh. And we've actually got some really good examples that are just coming into the fore at the moment that are kind of fresh recipes where they have very high moisture. They're really fluffy. Um, but obviously the whole idea of cheese is, is it's a, a method of a store, isn't it, I suppose? It's to basically say, well, we can't drink all this milk before it goes off. So we're going to produce butter and we're going to make creams and then we're going to make cheeses that allow us to have a sort of a larger window with this ingredient that allow us to then take it to market and place and things like that. So that's exactly the same today as it ever was before. And on that level, I guess, as, you, as you're saying, the maturer has the has the opportunity basically to receive cheeses and to, in a sense, draw moisture out of them in drying rooms according to how long he wants to, or she, you know, as, as mm. how long they want to mature them. So if you're taking your cheeses um, to sort of three or four weeks where you're gonna stay with quite creamy, milky flavors within the cheese, then you, you would leave them in a drying room to a certain density of moisture. Uh, and retention of moisture. If you then wanted to mature things to two months, three months, you would leave them in the drying rooms for longer. Um, and that's all to do with just preventing breakdowns on the outside of the cheeses, which is all about those molds and those rinds, which wouldn't be favorable if you took the, con the first concept and then took it to three months, if you see what I mean. If you took a cheese yeah. that you dried out for three weeks oh, aging, and then went, oh dear, we haven't sold them. Let's just keep them until we do. And you're sitting on them for the, you know, until three months comes up. Those cheeses are very likely to be very soapy uh, in taste. Uh, they're going to be quite, uh, possibly quite bitter and basically really not representative of, of your work or, or the producer. So you basically, you get them in and according to your rotation of stock and your vision of how you like to sell ideally those cheeses, you, you have that control point as it arrives. It's a really important one I think that French maturers and a lot of northern Italian and I think more and more across the UK 
um, maturers are, are kind of learning this 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 important control point to dictate yeah, so what in, happens. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of hidden. I'm always struck by how much sort of hidden work there is in cheese. You know, the work by the cheesemaker, but also by the the cheesemongers or the importer. Or, you know, um, yeah, that we just don't. As a customer, you know, I just sort of blithely go along and expect the cheese to be perfect. But actually, huge amount of work has gone to getting that. Um, talk, talk me through some of the particular. Are they? Do you have sort of favourite French? goat's cheeses or are there some really striking examples of different styles i was thinking partly about the sort of the black ash coating that you often see on goat's cheeses yeah. don't you and that's really interesting i mean that, that kind of relates back actually to what we were talking about earlier in the loire where you've got uh, a wine producing area um the pruning that gets done i guess around january february in the middle of the winter produces vast amounts of of ash or wood or ash uh, once they've burnt them and that ash is actually a really naturally brilliant place to store cheeses. So actually, if we mm. go back in time, pre-refrigeration, pre all the kind of um, uh, modern technologies which are used to store cheeses and, and lots of products uh, that we eat, um, ash was a really good thing in a pot. You'd have a ceramic pot, you'd make your cheese and you'd dump it into the ash, cover it with ash, and then as you made cheeses over the week, whatever you wanted to store, you'd just put what you wanted to eat on the table and then you'd put what you wanted to store in into the ash pot. And then obviously a few weeks later, what you've got is the opportunity to then go back to this cheese and then pull it out of the ash. You'd obviously naturally have a, a, a black sooted rind, but on the inside, you'd have a cheese that was kept in an inert, extremely clean space, um, but also one that was drawing out moisture. So it was actually naturally, so they'd be, I think by description, they'd be typically very, very dry. Um, so that's something that was done all over the areas where people made cheese, where there were, where there was an abundance of kind of ash in the area. So where there was wine and cheese making uh, locally, then you'd find that. So across the Loire, for example, you've got Valencie or Saint-Maur that are classically ash-rinded cheeses. Um, obviously now they don't do that. It's just commemorative. And I suppose it's part of another thing, which is the aspect, as the French call it. It's just the look of the cheese. And it's just, it's become part of the look and, and how it should be, if you get what I mean. You don't, with an AOC, you don't get to choose whether you want your Valencia to be with ash or without. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's mm -hmm. been decided. It's, it's an ash-rinded cheese. Um, but I think those were the origins. That's yeah, fascinating. Very practical now, again, yeah. isn't it? You know, absolutely using what you've got, making the most. You know, as as one, you know, as one would. Um, there's, there's, yeah, absolutely. There's 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 a lot of romance around cheese, and I think actually when you when you break it down, it probably breaks down to some really practical farming um, <laughs> requirements. Um, it's never been easy, and if you're a polymath farmer, or if you've ever met one, um, you know, it, it's extremely it's extremely hard work running. Yeah, making, it's making the most, isn't it? Spinning I mean, all those plates and, and keeping them around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, making the most. Yeah. I mean, it's like when you go, isn't it that thing of a productive lifestyle, isn't it? That when you go to Italy or Greece, you, you know, the gardens have got fruit trees and nut trees. And, you know, it's all about use your space to grow stuff that you can, that you can eat. You know, it's a very, yeah, very sort of practical approach. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose down in the Provence area, we've got producers that, for example, exactly just what you've said, they grow, they have olive groves and they line some of their pastures, sort of, you know, places where they'll basically largely leave it to grow as it is naturally or potentially sow certain grasses and, and hays in, uh, you know, grasses to sort of produce hay in there. Um, but they'll have olives to basically count on if, for example, it gets extremely dry and the grass doesn't grow and 
the animals therefore have a lactation that dips, that's going to be a year where that producer's then in Provence going to go, well, I, I didn't have water for seven months or something. I think there was a year, seven months is an exaggeration, but I think a few years ago there were five months where there was no water over Roc d'Enterron, which is really specific. And that producer was then, well, I'm really glad I've got my olive groves because I can now depend on that. So again, keeping Keep it, uh, making sure that you're not dependent on one one single source and obviously growing things that grow naturally in that area and aren't dependent on irrigation or kind of dam projects and all of that kind of hullabaloo, which is often very politically led and, and is obviously something that could be in your area for a few decades and then it could sweep away and then you'd be mm. left with a farm uh, growing all sorts of fruit which actually don't naturally grow at all in that area. So we've actually got producers that are very alert to that uh, reality of their geography, yeah. How interesting. You used the term lactic cheeses earlier, John. Do you want to just explain what, what that is? Uh, you know, and is that is that a, is that a specific style for these fresh, um, these yeah, sort of soft goat's cheese? Yeah, it's good that you asked me to explain it. I think it's really easy, isn't it, when you're in a profession to just knock out terms and forget to actually define what you're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, lactic's basically talking of the really early. The re probably the first recipes that really ever existed. They're recipes that need hardly any technology. They're recipes that are done at room temperature in sort of temperate regions, so between 20, 22 degrees, um, which is obviously what we'd recognize as what you'd find across most of Europe, um, across most of the year. And then you've, and lactic is, is basically a recipe where the cheese is predominantly coagulating, or the milk is coagulating and becoming um, a cheese from the process of bacteria, uh, lactic acid bacteria, who enjoy eating lactose. So you put or you add these bacteria to your milk and they consume the sugars and then they actually, if you don't mind, push out acids uh, in, in, in retort. So their excretion is acid and that acidity is basically the beginning of the fermentation of the cheese. Now, if you do that, you could possibly wait three days. So there's another ingredient that you add, which is rennet. And rennet is used in 99% of all cheese making. And I, I always use that as the idea of if bacteria is the catalyst, then the rennet's the exhilarator. It's the, it's the two-part oh. glue scenario of the, the, the ingredient that speeds it up to the time you'd like it. So again, to go back, lactic cheese making is predominantly working on the activity of the bacteria. They put a minuscule amount of rennet in, and that makes sure that you're kind of basically fermenting over about 20 to 22 hours. And that means that you have a pot of um, maybe a bucket of milk on day one, and on day two, that will be coagulated and ready to be molded, uh, basically um, ladled into molds the following day. Um, and in a sense, it's a really interesting recipe because it's, um, as I said, it's, it doesn't require ton and a half presses. It doesn't require big tables or sort of three ton vats. It just requires a kitchen space, a few molds, and then maybe an activity of pouring milk into a bucket and then ladling into some molds of about half an hour every morning. So if you're going back to what we were talking about of polymath farmers, it was extremely practical. So if you're mm. actually quite self-important and thinking, I've got kids to take to school, I've got other things to do around my farm, I've got to fix up my barn from the Mistral winds, then actually it was a really sensible thing to do with milk because it meant that you weren't working the curds for hours on end, which is yeah. what you'll find with other recipes. Um, which are basically more rennet-driven. So yeah, so it's so another predominant... example of practicality, isn't it, John? Very interesting. Yeah, so... I guess that's it. And then I guess the the main factor of that means that lactic, and and we use the term lactic because it means that's the 
descriptor of the flavor that comes from that recipe. So it tends to be what I would then describe as cheeses that taste like yogurt plus one, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's basically that kind of rich acid, which you would expect to get from a yogurt, but just slightly denser and more pressed. Um, and then there are various textures that you'll get from that. Whereas if you compare that, for example, to a halloumi or a cheddar, on day one or day two, you would never get any sense of yogurt. You'd actually feel like you're eating a, a sort of a squash rubber ball of milk. Sort of, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. as in a perfect articulation of a solidified, yeah, the solids of, of the milk being, yeah, solidified mm. in that form. So halloumi being something that's very, very plain compared to, to that lactic recipe. I, I wanted to ask you, in, the, in your years of sentences, have you noticed an interest in Britain where, you know, historically we didn't really have a goat's cheese tradition as far as I understand it but have you noticed uh, you know is it something that people are enjoying more and more I think it is I mean you know you talk with Charlie Westhead and that that's someone who's been you know one of the most important goat's cheese producers in the UK in starting and I remember him saying that back in the day in order to make his product and sell it he had to make sure that he didn't write goat on his cheese that somehow he had to write fromage de chèvre or chèvre cheese <laughs> because that spoke to the proletariat in the UK and if they saw goat cheese they'd be like oh yeah I don't want any of that that doesn't sound mm. good at all so there was there was so he's he was at the very beginning of a tradition of kind of lactic goat cheese making and there are other characters that we could also mention but I think from from that point on I was I suppose goat cheese making is is probably made in the UK more and more for a couple of reasons. One is I think they're, they're generally for urbanites or people that are intellectuals or academics who want to move to the country to, to make cheese. I've generally found, generally, that they often always talk about how they relate to goats more than they do to sheep and cows. Now, I don't want to be someone who starts a, an argument over the airwaves. <laughs> Why would you ever say such a thing? Go on. But Go I on, think John. it's yeah. just that they're, well, they're just, I think people would maybe say that goats are curious they're nosy. They they kind yes. of they have a bit of a. They do seem characterful, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And sheep are actually quite nervy. They like to be left alone. Uh, you know, there's a lot of generalisation in what I'm saying. And I guess maybe for people that haven't been around cows from when they're young, uh, there's something really quite awesome and ominous about them. They are they are huge animals, and so obviously mm. there's all of that. The second would obviously be that the cost to running a farm with goats is so much cheaper. So if you wanted to set up in you know over the last 20 30 years if you want to work with cows i think it's it's a million quid before you've even started to talk about how many cows you're going to have on your farm whereas with goats you just need a clamp to hold them whilst you feed them and milk them twice a day and then as i said this recipe which demands very little sort of infrastructure equipment and technology um, so what? it's a it's a really it's not the easy route in that would be a really silly thing to say but it's definitely economically the easiest way to set up a farm in the UK right and I think obviously we've th there are technologies to make sure that we can dry cheeses and look, look after them and there's much more control over feed and I think you know there's been an interest in seeing what can we do over here as you as as you'll you'll know well there are more and more people from Burgundy buying up land across Dorset, Cornwall and all over because they know that that's going to be a really interesting place to make wine in the future. And that's that's the changing um, sort of geography and, and general yearly temperatures in the UK change. And that also means that we're, we're in the same situation a little bit with dairy where, you know, if it was really awfully wet all the time and it was like Patagonia, I think you probably wouldn't bother with goats. But if you have places in east, you know, in the east of the UK or in areas where it's not super marshy and boggy, they're animals that do really well and they live perfectly fine in the UK and have done for centuries, to be honest. So, yeah, I think it's it's definitely 
the most exciting explosive thing that's happened in the UK over the last 20 years that I know of. Yeah. Listen, John, yeah. thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely, I feel like I've been taken to France and I've learned a lot and, and I, I really like the practicality that's come out throughout this interview. So brilliant. Thank you very much, John. No trouble at all. Thanks for having me. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.